0: It's good. Thanks. Amen. Gosh, it's good to be with you all today. Um, so last Sunday, I had the privilege of worshiping uh, with Tyre Church in Lebanon um, and uh, seeing just a little bit of what they have been doing. We've supported them two years with the Christmas offering and uh, it, specifically their lighthouses that invest in refugees. It is a staggering humanitarian crisis right now in the Middle East and uh, the country of Lebanon, just to try to picture this. Their population has grown by 25% just from Syrian, Iraqi, Palestinian refugees, and it is an overwhelming issue. Um, And what's amazing is being in the country, seeing it firsthand. No one is helping these people outside of the UN. UNICEF does a little bit. And then the Christian church in Lebanon and, and in the Middle East. And it's amazing to just see it. So those of you who have invested in the Christmas offering and invested in this ministry, thank you. I'm going to tell you more stories about this in the future. But it just was such a privilege to be with them last week and a privilege to be with you this week. And in fact, I did something that I never do. Um, we, I looked at the schedule and I saw like where we were going to fall in this Mark series. We've been going through the book of Mark, and uh, we were going to land on a, the beginning of chapter ten last week. And I was so excited to preach on it that I made Roland switch with me. And I'm told he showed up with Oreos, and it was just pandering. And I, I don't even know what that's about. I have nothing that good for you, um, but I really wanted to preach on it because. This is a passage where Jesus is going to say some potentially inflammatory things about the issue of divorce, and it's one of those passages that if we interpret it uh, wrong, we get one answer, and if we interpret it right, we get another one, and it's so important in passages like this that we don't lose sight of the heart of our God, and so I was just really excited to dive into it with you, so we're going to be going backwards this week if you're following along to Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Let me start this morning uh, just to get us ready to read this with a crash course in biblical interpretation, okay? Crash course in biblical interpretation. The Bible exists first and foremost to reveal Jesus to us. Almost everyone would agree that is the purpose of the text. That's why we hold that book in our hands. I often have said, I wish the first verse in the Bible, like right up front, was that uh, passage where Paul talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, meaning he is everything God is, and God is everything Jesus is. He is the picture of what God is like. That's why we have the Bible. It's the most important purpose of the book, and when we read the Bible and we're trying to understand what does it mean, we call that interpretation. That's biblical interpretation, and there's a few rules for biblical interpretation that help us not come up with kind of crazy interpretations, as some have done through the years, Uh, and, and so there's some interpretive rules, but there is none more important than this, because of the purpose of the Bible, that no truth in the Bible will ever be inconsistent with the character of Jesus. That's the first rule of biblical interpretation. And when we read a verse in the Bible and we're like, well, what does this mean, God? What truth do you have for me in this? Whatever we land on has to be consistent with the God revealed through Jesus Christ. And if we come up on something and land on an interpretation, it makes logical sense to us, it makes sense historically for us, but somehow it is inconsistent with the character of Jesus, Then, no matter how much sense it makes to our eyes, that interpretation is false because the Bible exists to reveal the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to us. So we have to start and end there. We have to line every truth in the Bible up with his character now. I want to give you an example uh, because of the subject that we're going to get into today. Out of curiosity, how many of you have heard this verse? For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I, I want to, I'm going to ask you to actually respond. How many of you have heard that verse? Okay, that's a significant number of us. Um, this is one of those verses that highlights the interpretation question. What does God want us to do with a verse like this? And if you try to make sense of this verse independent of the character of Jesus, you will get one interpretation. But if you connect it to what we know about God's heart for us as revealed by the person of Jesus Christ, you will get a totally different interpretation. And what seems to have happened through the years to some of us is that there have been some people who have kind of put that verse out there in isolation like that, not connected to the surrounding verses, and when someone does that, that should be your first clue that maybe they have lost sight of the heart of Jesus, and when you start going down that road, you often get an interpretation of a verse like this that sounds an awful lot more like God hates divorced people, and He doesn't. That's totally inconsistent with the character of Jesus. And in fact, if you've ever heard someone just kind of quote this verse in isolation and just like mic drop this verse, I give you permission to stop listening to them. You can blame me. Just stop listening because something is up with that. But people have used it that way and it's become like this clobber verse for divorce. Meaning, hey, God hates it. That settles it. Period, so if you're divorced, you have the scarlet D on your chest, shame on you for doing something God hates. Look at Malachi 2:16. But, remember our first rule of interpretation. If we reconnect this verse to the heart of our Savior, we start to get some different interpretations out of it. We might ask some questions like, "Why, why does God hate divorce? That's relevant. Why would a loving God, embodiment uh, in Jesus, declare something like this? We start to read the surrounding verses and we discover that it's actually embedded in this really quite beautiful prophecy about how God loves fidelity and justice, and most importantly that God longs for human flourishing, God longs for connection, God longs for faithfulness, and that sounds an awful lot like why Jesus came for this abundant life that he wants us to experience the best possible human existence that we were created for. And suddenly, instead of having a God who's angry at divorced people, you discover that a verse like this tells us about a God who roots for your abundant life, for human flourishing, and hates. He's heartbroken when that flourishing is disrupted by the pain of divorce. That's exactly what we would expect. It is totally unsurprising that Jesus, who loves humans and roots for our flourishing, would not like broken relationships. And by the way, do you know who else hates divorce? Virtually every divorced person ever, right? Nobody likes divorce and when we take a verse like this, that might be a hard verse in isolation, and we connect it to the heart of Jesus, it doesn't clobber divorce people, it simply reveals a God who roots for divorced people, who roots for marriages, and who grieves with us when they fall apart like we all do. It reveals a God who feels, incidentally, about divorce like all of us would. And that's where a discussion of verses like this has to start, with the character of Jesus. Whenever we're interpreting difficult passages of Scripture, we have to remember it will never mean anything inconsistent with the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if the interpretation sounds true, but it doesn't line up with that, then it is false and we have to keep digging and doing the work. Since we're on the subject, if you've never heard this, I'll just say it, Uh, some of the ways that scripture has been weaponized against certain people groups like divorced people? It can only be sustained if we cut Jesus out of the Bible, right? So today we're going to read some verses that have uh, you know, possibly potentially been used against divorced people, and I don't want us to lose sight of our Savior. I know there's been a lot of moments where churches have maybe not handled this issue very well, Um, I we've clobbered people with verses and I just like from the bottom of my heart I just want to say I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that we've done that What I want to do today is try to connect this passage to the heart of God The God behind it who's for you in every way and however you've been affected by divorce Which is all of us I would say in a room like this probably all of us have had some impact He is for you in it And I don't want us to lose sight of that as we work through this passage, because if we start and end there, some of these difficult passages actually become some of the most beautiful passages that give us a picture of God's love for us. So with all that said, turn to Mark chapter 10. Let's dive into what Jesus is going to say here. We're going to start in verse 1, which I know we were ahead of that last week. We'll, We'll catch up next week. Mark 10 verse 1. Mark tells us this. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if you've read Mark up to this point, you should know a couple things automatically. First of all, the Pharisees are never just asking a question. He says they're testing him. They have horrible motives here, right? So they're, they're, they're trying to trap him, but realize the test is not actually about divorce. This is actually a political test that they're bringing to Jesus, disguised as a question about Levitical divorce laws. So Mark tells us Jesus is in the region of Judea across the Jordan. I was actually there last week. It's quite beautiful. It's deserty. It's the kingdom of Jordan these days. But in, in Jesus' day, it was the kingdom of Herod Antipas. You'll remember Herod Antipas divorced his wife. His sister-in-law divorced his brother. And then the two of them got married. Jesus' cousin John said, well, that's sinful. That, that shouldn't happen. And so uh, the, the woman that he married, Herodias, had John killed, had him beheaded. And so they're in this guy's territory, and they bring to Jesus this very subtle question about, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The test is really an attempt to get Jesus to say something that would make Herod angry enough to kill him. That's what they're about here. Jesus, he's brilliant. He sees it coming from a mile away, right? And so look at how he responds. Verse 3, what did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. We're going to get to the rest of it in a second. I just want to park there for a second. This is a stunning statement that Jesus makes. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Now, the the passage in question is from the Jewish scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the way that it's written is kind of vague. Moses writes that if a man finds something indecent in his wife, he is able to divorce her if he writes her a certificate. And there were some reasons for this. The certificate, then she could take and she could go marry another man legally. So it provided a little bit of covering and protection for her. It was very hard to be a divorce divorced woman uh, in Jesus' day or in Moses' day, right? So it helps a little bit, but still, it is kind of a harsh law that slants all of the, the power into the hands of men. With one sentence, Jesus wipes that law away, and he says, listen, the only reason that ever made it into the Bible is because your hearts were so hard. That's not what God wants. He was just working with what he had. He realized you weren't ready for more, so he was trying to make the best of this really bad situation. We should not overlook how amazing that statement is. What Jesus is saying is this that sometimes God interacts with us in a way that is tailored to what we can handle. That's stunning. Sometimes he even tailors that to our hardness of heart, which is a bad thing, but he works with that even. And that means there are commands in Scripture that are written because God knew that was all we people could handle at the time. That seems like an important thing to know about the Bible, doesn't it? Let me give you an example just to, to make it concrete for us of what I think actually Jesus is describing between God and God's people in the scriptures. Let's say that your five-year-old, if you have a child, if your five-year-old walks into the room and says, mom, dad, um, whoever, probably mom or dad, um, where do babies come from? So your five-year-old asks you that question. What do you say? Don't shout out answers, it's retort. What what do you say? You know what you don't do? You don't go to your bookshelf and pull off your collegiate textbook on human sexuality and say, well, come over here, let me just thumb through some of this, right? You don't do that, right? Because there are only five. What you do instead is you give a truthful answer, that's very important with kids, give a truthful answer that is tailored to what a five-year-old can handle. Knowing that you're going to have to have another conversation later as they get older and they have different questions than the the answers that you've just given them, but their capacity at that point will be a little bit greater, and so you can explain in more detail what, what they need to know. Apparently, sometimes in Scripture, God does that with us. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what this divorce law was about. He's just working with you guys, you weren't ready. Let me give you another biblical example. Um, The New Testament. There's verses in the New Testament that encourage slave owners to treat their slaves with dignity and respect as brothers and sisters. Now that is in no way an endorsement of slavery, right? That is an acknowledgement that virtually every culture, when the Bible was written, practiced some form of human slavery. And so God was obviously obviously, against human slavery. It is an attack on the very image of God within us. And his whole goal from the beginning of time until now, I would say, is abolition of human slavery. That is what God is about everywhere forever. And incidentally, guys, we have to be aware, and I hope you are at this point if you're a part of this church, that there are more human slaves today than at any point in the history of the earth. That's why we partner with the Exodus Road. That's why this refugee crisis matters, is because God is about abolition, absolutely. But that goal of abolition of slavery is never explicitly stated in the Bible. Instead, what we see is God pushing hard-hearted humans forward again and again. And there's this great movement over the arc of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But ultimately, that work is left unfinished. Which means what God did is he left that that work for the church to finish. He said, you're my people. You see where this is going. It's on you all to abolish slavery. And that's why we lean into it. And there's themes like this in Scripture where God is moving hard-hearted people forward, but they don't yet arrive. And there's a a complicated term for this. It's called uh, the redemptive movement hermeneutic. But you can't see it just by looking at a specific verse. You look at the arc of Scripture as God interacts with humans over time, and you see their capacity for what he has for them grows and grows and grows, but sometimes it does not yet finish within the pages of the text. So these Pharisees, they're not interested in that. They come to Jesus with a specific text and they say, hey, apply that to this moment right here. And Jesus says, guys, you've misunderstood. God was just working with you. He had hard-hearted people, so he did the best he could with what he had, moving them forward based on what they could handle. And then he goes on to say this. He doesn't answer their direct question, but what he says instead is, verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus has just done something else brilliant here. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And the Pharisees, they're asking him about the specific Levitical law question. But instead of addressing that question, he takes them to the biggest picture. He takes them to like before sin entered the world. Let me hit you with God's ideal for human flourishing and marriage. When God dreamed up marriage, this is what he dreamed up. That's really common with Jesus. You see people time and time again, they come to him with the sort of questions that we all want to know. Like, hey, where's the line of sin? It's a boundary question. Hey, if I do this thing, is it right or wrong? Where's the boundary? And Jesus frequently responds to our questions about boundaries by answer or bringing us to God's ideal for what it means to be human. He takes us to that big picture instead of just addressing the boundary. And there's a really important reason he does this, especially with the Pharisees. Like we know with the Pharisees, their big problem was self-righteousness, right? That was what they were about. Jesus was always on them about their self-righteousness. Self-righteousness thrives on the boundaries of sin. Like, if I can just know, like, what is that line that constitutes sin, and then I can make sure that I never cross that line, and I'll know I'm righteous, because I never crossed that line, and I'll know that everyone who did cross that line, I'm more righteous than them. That's how self-righteousness works. Jesus never entertains that with them. He never answers those line questions in the way that they want him to. Instead, he is constantly drawing their attention from the line to the ideal that God had for us when he dreamed up humans from the beginning. And I think what what the difference is, when we focus on the ideal that God has for us, there is no room for self-righteousness, is there? Because I can look at this line and say, ha, you went further than I did, so I'm better than you. But if I look at that ideal, we all fall short, don't we? And that's why Jesus takes him to Genesis 2. He does this all the time with the Pharisees. Here he's doing it with marriage, and he's reminding them that there's this picture that God had in his heart of male and female, these two different aspects of the image of God, the feminine and the masculine, somehow coming together in oneness and in completeness. That's what God dreamed up when he dreamed up marriage. And we can have the discussion about divorce that the Pharisees want to have, but before we do that, we just need to acknowledge that there has not been a marriage in the history of the earth that measured up to this ideal, has there? Not one. All human marriage fall short. It is broken, it is sinful, and that's the point that Jesus is trying to get them to, is that they fall short, and we can talk about what God does or doesn't allow for divorce, but that conversation will not be healthy unless it starts with this awareness that, like, as humans, we have all been complicit in messing up this male-female oneness, unity, completeness together thing. Divorce people didn't mess this up. Amen? It's all of us who have messed this up. The Pharisees didn't want to be there, but Jesus took them there anyway. And there's, at Jesus' point, there is zero room for self-righteousness on this subject or any subject, but especially on this subject. Pharisees want to talk about Herod's marriage. Jesus wants them to think about God's ideal for marriage because when we focus on that, it leads us forward. It makes us stop thinking about where those lines are. It helps us to see what we were created for. It helps us to get that we are in this thing together and our self-righteousness is just foolish. Conversations about the boundaries, they don't do that. So, Jesus, brilliant right? This is a brilliant guy here. What he's doing is brilliant with these Pharisees. He navigates this test, but then later they leave, and he's alone with his disciples, and this happens. Look at verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now again, don't lose sight of the heart of Jesus here. A couple of things we need to observe about this passage. First, remember the backdrop of this is King Herod's marriage. That's what the Pharisees were asking him about. That's what his disciples, I believe, are asking about here. Is they're asking, well, what is the answer? Um, and that's why he says, listen... It, it's adultery like what Herod's doing is wrong he sides with his cousin John the Baptist and then he also addresses what Herodias Herod's new wife did and that's why he throws out this comment about if she divorces her husband and marries another man that's also adultery so he's speaking to the issue of the day privately with his disciples saying yeah John the Baptist was right I'm with him on this but the other thing that he's doing is something that he frequently does when it comes to this issue, is he is leveling the playing field a bit between the genders. He's fighting for a little bit more equity and equality between men and women. The Pharisees are asking about Deuteronomy 24. uh, It was like a hotly debated issue in Jesus' day. And there were two schools of interpretation that predated Jesus. One was Rabbi Shammai, who taught that the only legitimate reason for a man to divorce his wife was marital unfaithfulness. The other school, though, was this rabbi named Hillel. And what Hillel taught is that if a man found anything indecent in his his wife, then he was justified in writing her this certificate of divorce. And you will note that both of those things are shamelessly slanted towards men, right? They put men in the power seat. Um, But because of the gender inequity in Jesus' day, this perspective that Rabbi Hillel taught that for any reason a man could write this certificate of divorce, it, it perpetrated this enormous injustice upon women. The Hillel School of Interpretation, basically he was proposing a world where men would have total control over the marriage relationship. And he was using scripture to justify that. That is not in any way this idea of mutuality and the completeness that we see of man and, uh, male and female coming together in Genesis 2. So Jesus is speaking against it. He's leveling the playing fields. And when he gets asked this question again and again, he regularly sides with Rabbi Shammai, where divorce is only allowable for marital, sexual, unfaithfulness. And what he's doing, I think, is he's trying to protect women uh, who faced enormous inequality. And that was the point of the law of Moses anyway. Really, this is the nature of what he is saying. And he's saying it to men in particular. Your dissatisfaction in marriage is not a legitimate reason to be unjust to your wife. Now, we would, of course, say the reverse is true. That principle applies to both genders. And women, your dissatisfaction in marriage is not a legitimate reason to be unjust to your husband. But in Jesus' day, it didn't really ever go that way. It really only ever went the other way. And so here's our Savior with a message to the men of his day, and not a lot of people were speaking this message to them. But he cares about equality. He cares about justice, and he's fighting for it. You know, you might still be left, though, with this question about divorce. You know, I see, we see what Jesus is doing there, but at the end of the day, Is divorce okay, or is it not okay? That's the question. Uh, Forgive me, I'm gonna be super simplistic. Please stay with me in the next few minutes. I don't want you to eject after I say one thing, and you totally misinterpret what I'm saying. Um, Let me be super simplistic. Is divorce okay, or is it not okay? Divorce is never okay. Ask your divorced friends how was your divorce? I promise you they will not say, it was okay. It's never okay. Divorce is always painful because all of us at some point, if we get married, we longed for something better. We hoped for something better. And you know what? That is exactly how God views it too. He views divorce the same way that we all do. It's tragic, it is painful, it hurts people that God deeply loves. And that's why he tries to push us in a different direction towards restoration. That he longs us to be free and to flourish free from that sort of pain because he loves us. And because he loves us, he's never like okay with it. Oh, it's no big deal. Of of course. Now that being said, as Jesus points out, he absolutely works with what he has, and I think while divorce is never something that will feel okay to a human heart or feel okay to God's heart, there are absolutely moments and situations where a marriage can just, it can become unsustainable, and there's three situations that the Bible regularly talks about. Some theologians debate this. I'm not going to get into the debate. We can talk later about that, but these are the three situations that biblically the Bible talks about, sexual unfaithfulness, abandonment, and abuse. Sexual unfaithfulness, abandonment, and abuse. In all three of those, you know, there's some debate there. None of those mean you must get a divorce, but in each of those situations, there is something profoundly broken in the marriage, and sometimes distance is appropriate. I do want to say this. Um, Hopefully we'll say this every time we bring it up. Just specifically with the issue of abuse, can, can I just say one thing about that? Um, abusive relationships are never fixed in the context of an abusive relationship. Does that make sense? Never. If there is spousal abuse, distance and help is the only hope. Distance and help. You cannot effort your way out of that issue. You have to get help. I'm going to put a website up here, Uh, CS dot org Um, that's a good place to start and i just want to say this if you're in a relationship where either there's abusive words or abusive actions i please you matter to god do not buy the lie that you can love your way out of this it's a lie you need to get help you need to get space back to the the issue of divorce um as a pastor, you get this question from time to time, am I sinning if I get divorced? Um, or the, the other question I get is, hey, if I got divorced for reasons other than those three that the Bible talks about, was that a sin? I, listen, I think that's a boundary line question. And again, I, forgive me, stay with me. I want to be really simplistic here and just say this, Of course it was a sin. Of course. I would suggest every instance of divorce that has ever happened in the history of the earth involves sin from both parties. Of course it's a sin. I'll go a step further, though. Every instance of marriage in the history of the earth involves sin from both parties. It's inescapable. And the wrong question is, is it a sin? Did I cross a line? Oh, of course you crossed the line. We cross lines all the time. That is a part of it. Married sin is no better than divorce sin. That's not what this debate is about. And I think the danger that Jesus really wants to warn us about with an issue like divorce is we become like these Pharisees, looking for a boundary line so that they could justify themselves. So that we can prove, hey, I never crossed it. I'm good, I'm not like those people. Jesus doesn't live on those boundaries. There's not life on those boundaries. Whether we are divorced for biblical reasons or whether we're divorced for non-biblical reasons or whether we're still married and just you know, sinning against our spouse every day like we do or whether we're not yet married. Uh, we look at God's ideal for human flourishing. We look at the perfectly righteous Jesus Christ. We look at what God pictured when he dreamed up humans instead of measuring ourselves out here on these lines, we look at that and we realize we fall short constantly. And when we do, whether it is a broken marriage or anything else, we confess our sins and we lean into the grace and the forgiveness of God. And as far as God is concerned, that is the end of it. It's the end of it. The point of this whole discussion, I think we're missing it if we just focus on what is allowable and where that line of sin is. That's how Pharisees think. Jesus has something else. Jesus takes us to the beauty of God's ideal and he's not trying to discourage us or to demoralize us or to shame us. He wants to lead us forward. He wants us to know God's heart for us. He he knows we're not gonna get there on this earth. He's less upset about that than we are sometimes. What he wants us to know is what we were created for so we can fight for it, so we can live for it. And when we fall short, which we all do, so that we can lean into his grace because his grace is permanent for us in a way that our sin is not. That's why we lean into it. And instead of focusing this debate on who can biblically justify their actions, I think we're far healthier if we just own our own sin and lean into that grace. That's where Jesus is leading us on this issue. Listen, as we close, I thought maybe I'd just address a few different people groups that might be here. Um, For instance, uh, if you're single, I know we have single folks here. Uh, This is true, isn't it? Sometimes churches talk about marriage in ways that might insinuate that you're like less of a Christian if you're unmarried. I really hope that we don't do that here, but I know that probably sometimes we do. I'm married, I use illustrations like that, and it's just, it's real easy to fall into that trap. Listen, if you are single, I hope you know this, marriage is not the answer for happiness or for your spiritual life, right? Jesus is the answer, not marriage. And you're not less than if you are unmarried. Jesus wasn't married. He also, incidentally, he said there's not going to be marriage in heaven. So there, you know, for all eternity, we're not going to be married. If you're single, you're just fine the way that you are. You are just fine the way that you are. Do not fix your hope on marriage, and please do not fix any shame on being unmarried. All right? Here's the second thing. If you're married, please don't think it is just your marriage that's fallen short. I hope you don't think that, but please don't think that. Marriage is as full of sin as everything else in life. It's not like you start sinning when you get divorced, like you start long before, um, you know? We, like we just have to accept that sin is going to be a part of that saying. We have to fight for each other. and We have to, with God's help, keep fighting to live in his grace for us and live in his grace for our spouse, who he loves as much as he loves us. We have to fight for that. And lastly, just I want you to hear this. If you are divorced, please hear me say this. You are not in any way less than because of your divorce. That's not what Jesus said. That's not his heart for you. Look at how he interacts with people. That's not his heart for you. If you've ever had a spiritual leader communicate that sort of thing to you, that somehow you have this scarlet D because you're divorced, I want you to know that says a lot more about that spiritual leader than it does about you. Don't listen to that guy. Listen to Jesus. He's for you. The God of the universe doesn't have this posture of anger and disappointment with you. He is the posture of Jesus. He's been grieving that pain with you. He hates that pain as much as you do. He sees what you were created for. He hates it more than you do, and he's with you. That's where I think we need to end today. God has only ever been for you, only. He accepts us because he has grace, not because we measure up. He accepts us because he is full of grace, not because we're able to get it right. We have to leave behind our obsession with these boundaries like the Pharisees. It's, it is not finding biblical grounds for our actions that leads us home. Even if you can, there's not life in that. It's his grace that leads us home. That's where life is found. And that's what he's inviting us to to today, whether we're divorced, whether we're married, whether we're single, there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. But there's just a lot of people who don't measure up to his ideal and have to lean in his grace because it is permanent for us in a way that our sin is not. We are just deeply loved brothers and sisters. And as we close, I just want us to rest in that. Would you stand with me? I want to pray this over you. Lord, we're standing together because we are recognizing that we are in this together. We are recognizing our self-righteousness is foolish. We are recognizing how much we need your grace every day. Lord, we want to be people of grace. Let us speak that to one another. We want to be free from shame and rest in what you have done. We don't want to live on those boundaries, God. We want to pursue your dream for us. And so we give ourselves to you, Lord, and we rest in your grace. Amen.